Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. For anyone who's listened to season three, episode nine, this is sort of like a part two. In just a little bit, author Shayla Lawson will read an excerpt from her book, This is Major. She will be accompanied by an original Storybound remix. Yesterday I lost the battle You put on a pretty dress and do your hair, like you did pre-marriage. But now you're post-divorce. You're getting ready to go out with the Colombian man you met while trying to cross make out with a guy at a party off your newly single bucket list. Don't worry, he says, halfway through your date, when you've progressed from dinner to drinks. You'll be on tender soon. I say goodbye with tears inside. He's a few years further into his own uncoupling than you are. Don't worry. You'll be on tender soon. The fuck you mean? You say to yourself, thinking about the hour and a half it took you to flat iron and exfoliate. You aren't trying to get married again. Oh, God, no. But you were at least planning to get through another date. Maybe two? Or three? Maybe hang out for a while in that zone of enjoying and being enjoyed without having to worry about dating. But tender? Tender? And soon? I lost you, baby. I lost you, baby. What is tender? You ask the Colombian. You have a vague idea, but you are trying to keep this one date going and pretend the answer will be the least bit interesting to you. It's this app where you get to meet people in the area. You know, swipe left, swipe right, he explains, animated by the possibility of being your envoy in this new dating world. But you're thinking he could be a much more useful envoy by fucking you, which doesn't happen because he's got a girlfriend, he explains, or rather, I'm kind of in a relationship which you would have known had he bothered to update his status to It's Complicated on the Facebook profile you hunted down in your obligatory pre-date internet stocking. But the notion of updating your Facebook relationship status is a bit outdated, isn't it? So you decide to try Tinder, or better yet, Tender decides to try you. It's about six months and as many dating attempts later, they've all had code names. The Colombian, the Unicorn, the President. Littlefinger, the date after which you decided maybe you'd give up altogether and start binge-watching Game of Thrones. But then you tell yourself it's probably psychologically important that you stop masturbating to episodes of The Wonder Years with an ice pack and a half bottle of cheap wine. Give us love another chance. It isn't the sex that bothers you, or the lack of sex, or the intermittent or the impotent sex. It's the fact that when you're coupled, you're inundated with this propaganda that describes the single world 
as an open-hearted nation of free-willing promiscuity where people are adults and people are responsible. And even when it doesn't work out, no one gets hurt very badly. You think it can be, but you're scared. You've been told by single people, it's time that you got back on the horse. The horse or the wagon? The wagon. But it's a scary ass world out there and you're not sure you're comfortable with a situation involving your genitals that uses agriculture as a metaphor. You'd spent most of your married life in the Netherlands, near a sheep farm and a farmer's market, a housewife learning how to make souffles. The two of you move back to America so you can go to graduate school and you spend the first year there wearing an apron. Still a housewife, canning tomatoes from your neighbor's backyard garden. It is in year two in America that you need to get an STD test. You're still married. But your husband's fidelity has become complicated. You fill out the form. How many sexual partners have you had over the course of your life? One. With how many sexual partners are you currently engaged? One. Are you currently sexually active? It is a drop-in health clinic. You've come under the pretext of a cold you don't have because you were too ashamed to write down the reason for your visit on the patient intake form. And by the way, I'd like to take an STD test, you tell the doctor as the visit is wrapping up and he writes you a prescription for drugs you probably have at home for symptoms you don't. He looks at your sexual history. He says you don't need an STD test. Give me the goddamned STD screening, your face says. Full panel spectrum. The nurse gets the needles. He prepares the gloves and clamps. Now that you're alone, you want to know your body is okay. Okay in a way a hospital test can't tell you. How are you going to go back into the world? Your soon-to-be ex-husband asks you one afternoon after the STD screening, after you've separated, but have ended up back in what is now only your bedroom when he comes over to do his laundry. How are you going to go back into the world, he says, as much as you like sex? You were a good girl. You turned into a regrettably better wife. Conversely, the critique women like you get is that you haven't invested enough time in being virtuous. By women like you, you mean black. For every one of you, there are at least a dozen men telling you the reason you're not married yet is because you haven't learned how to act like a wife. About a half dozen of these men are famous and making hundreds of thousands of dollars capitalizing off the concept of the undateable black woman. Pastor Gray, D.L. Hughley, Ralph Richard Banks. And there was this one time you couldn't walk down 125th Street in Harlem without seeing a black woman carrying a copy of Steve Harvey's best-selling Act like a lady, think like a man. Steve Harvey, the man with three marriages and two restraining orders. The man enmeshed in a $60 million lawsuit for beating and cheating on his first wife. But you didn't need slut shaming from a waiting room full of megachurch comedians to keep you good and decent. Yeah.
You had an overtly suburban, conservative Christian family in your background. You prayed, you sang the hymns, you cooked all the meals, you kept your legs closed all the way up until your white veil wedding night in your late 20s. You still ended up here. The music you're hearing in this episode is sampled from Stuart Zetterberg, Cushy, The Eastern Plain, and Tiger Blood Jewel. And now for a commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with author Shayla Lawson. And now we return from our break. was a beautiful five-course banquet I was meant to partake of carefully, methodically, savoring each hors d'oeuvre and entree with immense tactile pleasure. You tell Rudo when she asks you about your decision to remain a virgin until you married. So that's what I did. I staved off my craving for sweets with a fruit course. Maybe a little pasta, but I stayed dedicated to the idea that at the end of this meal, there would be cake. So, I got married. I had a wedding, and there was cake. Three fucking tiers of cake, cake for an eternity. Everyone was anxious to watch me eat it. I cut myself a dainty sliver and ate politely, chuckling with the wedding guests and covering my mouth. I spent the next few years turning that cake into the best possible version of itself it can be before 30. The wedding's long over, but cake's supposed to stick around forever. I rose from the table to cut myself another slice. But cake has vanished, cake is gone, cake is canceled, cake has written down on a sticky note. So you decide to try tender. Because you've decided you want to try to have a one night stand. You've heard of these encounters mostly conducted by spies in movies in which two people come together in the biblical sense, preferably at a hotel where they can make a joke about the dresser drawer containing a Gideon Bible. They were all black and ravage each other, and one walks out of the room the next morning while the other one is sleeping or shoots their lover in the head like a black widow Rihanna ex-wife. 
you download the Tinder app and stop relentlessly referring to yourself and the second person. to organize my first one-night stand while I'm out of town at a conference. A writer's conference in Minneapolis. He's a picture of Saturn, Peter. He replaced his face with a picture of Saturn. I say to my fellow writer and close friend, we're in a dimly lit dive bar rapidly swiping left through a series of unacceptable men's photos on my phone. After carefully curating a collection of my cutest photos, some shots with friends, some close-ups, that photo of me in Venice where my abs are the MVPs, no selfies, and one outcast quote. Real guys go for real down-to-Mars girls. Major, right? I did something good girls are never supposed to do. I made my dating profile public. Eventually, you're going to have to pick one, Peter says. Not quite in the tone he might use to encourage me to buy a pair of pony hair stiletto boots bound to put me in overdraft, but more in the one he used a few months ago as he inspected a clogged drain in my upstairs bathtub. Each day, I'd been showering quickly and crossing my fingers that the gray sludge wouldn't creep in between my toes. The pipes grumbled, like they were getting a divorce. Eventually, you're gonna have to get someone in here to fix this, Paige said, with a bit of exasperation, pulling back the shower curtain, then clapping his clean hands together. A job well done. We continue to scroll through the dating offerings of Greater Minneapolis. This city feels like a solid place for me to try out my first Tinder profile. I figure the odds are slim I'll run into anyone who knows me. Minneapolis is the ancestral home of Prince, whose music was the soundtrack to which I was conceived. Plus, Minnesota is my birth state. This return brings a delightful circularity to my sexual cotillion, my coming forth my birthing a new identity. I find a photograph of a guy named Ricky. His smile looks cheerful, but mischievous, and his eyes seem to dance a little in the light of the photograph. I finally swipe right. The next evening, Ricky and I meet at the same dive bar where I'd sat with Peter and swiped on his profile. There are only a handful of places I know how to get to in Minneapolis, and I've established a pattern of visibility in this bar. Plus, in case Ricky decides to murder me on the spot and a group of my writer friends have to be called in by the police to identify my body, at least I'll be in a location they can easily get to. As for my spy-level seduction, the only black outfit I packed was a miniskirt that has the Wu-Tang Clan logo printed all over it. Too obvious. 
I pick a slim-fitting, backless navy blue dress and arrive early to look calculatedly cool while sipping a sweaty Manhattan in a well-worn leather club chair. Ricky enters the bar on time. According to, well, everyone, the two most undateable demographics on social dating apps are black women and Asian men. I could back this up with stats. I'm a Virgo. A spreadsheet is basically my love language. But any internet search on dating app discrimination immediately reveals articles with titles like Racial Bias Against Dating Black Women and Asian Men is Very Real. BuzzFeed. Sexual Racism and Life on Tender as an Asian Man, Mel Magazine. Why Black Women and Asian Men are at a disadvantage when it comes to online dating, Toronto Star. And are Tender likes racially prejudiced? Yes, obviously. Metro UK. So Okay, Cupid's report Race and Attraction 2009 through 2014 shows black women and Asian men on the lowest ranking scale for quick match scores. The diagrams use colors to signify how a person's racial designation stacks up against their perceived attractiveness based on the racial preferences specified by members of the opposite sex. In a series of charts in which average attractiveness is defined by the number of times a person swipes right, and is represented by boxes in verdant green, the attractiveness level of black women and Asian men is marked in stoplight red, representing ratings in the negative, less than 0%, failing test scores that the stereotypes of neither Asian men nor black women would find acceptable. And this abysmal landscape, OkCupid's report concludes with this advice to undateables. One of the interesting things about OkCupid's interface is that we allow people to select more than one race, so you can actually look at people who've combined white with another racial description. Adding whiteness always helps your rating. In fact, it goes a long way towards undoing any bias against you. You are listening to Storybound with Wanda Shakes, Spring Gang, and Twelve. And now for our final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with author Shayla Lawson. And now for our final chapter. Ricky is Vietnamese. About 20 minutes into our date, he tells me he and his sister were adopted by a British couple as babies and imported to America, where their parents taught at Midwestern colleges. So you're basically living someone else's American dream, I joke. He laughs and looks down at his Coke. He doesn't drink. 
I catch him giving a side glance through the bar window to a pair of big-haired, big-booty girls passing by. I'm not mad. We like what we like. It seems obvious this isn't his first time at the Donna Summer Disco. I ease into the idea that I am not an anomaly for him, that I may even be one of his racial preferences on this dating app. So you like black girls, I say. And he gives his body a quick shake. A little embarrassed, I caught his glance. It isn't something I'd normally ever say, so uncouth, but I'm out of town, starring in my own spy movie, and so I'm testing out the dialogue. It's not that. It was that. It's just one of the girls reminded me of my ex. She had big hair. I do love big hair. He settles into his chair with a flirtatious smile, looking unbothered and confident. Though we don't speak of it, I can tell he's latched on quickly to the idea that the two of us are starring in our own movie, one Hollywood should really cast us in. Have you ever had an afro? He asks. I find his question arousing. I smile at the possibility of my slick-backed sister locks disappointing him as he returned in his mind to my tender profile. They could have been braids. They could have been housing some immaculate forest of peonies and coconut oil he could lose his face in had he caught me on a day in which I had chosen to unleash my hair. We talk and walk between a couple of bars before we land outside in the Minnesota spring chill while he smokes a cigarette. He doesn't drink. He smokes. I don't smoke. I drink. We are obviously not getting married. I've asked him about what he likes to do to keep himself occupied in the town. I keep a bunch of pates in my house, he says. A leftover habit from childhood. I think my parents thought I'd become a famous artist, but I'm not any good. I like putting stuff down on campus. We'd skirted around it long enough. It's the moment in the script where one spy has to decide if they're going to throw the other one up against the wall and kiss them or slink off into the night to resume the fight against bioterrorism. What would you like to do with the rest of your Friday night in Minneapolis? Ricky asks. I think I'd like to paint. Goodbye so long, my dear. Thank you to Shayla Lawson for reading from her book, This Is Major, Notes on Diana Ross, Dark Girls, and Being Dope. Go buy yourself a copy at your local bookstore. And if you haven't heard Shayla's previous episode, go into your podcast player and select episode nine from season three, Black Lives Matter, Yard Signs Matter. Thank you to Epidemic Sound. Thank you to Stir Zetterberg, Cushy, The Eastern Plain, Tiger Blood, Jewel, Wanda Shake, Spring Gang, and 12. Thank you to Hannah Bishop and Harper Collins. Production assistance is provided by Jordan Aaron. And our mixing engineer is Tim Carplus. Storybound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of Lit Hub. We've got some more bonus episodes with authors from season three coming up. Just make sure you're subscribed to the show, your friends too, and connect with us on Instagram or on Twitter at StoryboundPod. See you next time.
the Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.